Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, June 4th, 2023. The sure ID numbers for Friday, June 2nd are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,317, that's 20317. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 20,318, that's 20318. This morning, A Vision for You presents Start of Summer Q&A. We come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the suffering and frustration we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We felt hopelessness when we tried to control our problems with food and eating. We felt despair trying every diet and used many methods to control our body size without success. We could not enjoy life because of our obsession with food and weight. We could not stop eating too much, even when we really wanted to. We felt shame and humiliation about our behavior with food. We come to OA looking for a way out a solution which will free us from the bondage of our disease. The big book was written as a set of directions for doing the 12 steps quickly and effectively. It's not a book of theory or philosophy. It offers a clear step-by-step approach for your recovery. It enables all of us to really and fully understand the twofold nature of our problem. It presents a clear, practical solution to the problem, and it shows us how to implement that solution through the 12 step program of action it describes. The 12 steps, as outlined in the Big Book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a personality change sufficient to overcome compulsive overeating. We submit to a simple process that certainly is not easy, yet takes us to a place we've never been. Joining us today is Harlan G., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, a beloved member of A Vision for You. Dedicated to carrying the message of recovery around the globe, it is always a privilege, an honor, and an absolute pleasure to welcome Harlan G. to the line. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. My God, how am I going to live up to that? Good Lord. Um, But thank you so much, and I'm so happy to be here. I'm Harlan G. I am a recovered compulsive overeater, and as was just said, I do indeed live in Scottsdale, Arizona. 
I am going to make this very short because I want to throw it open for questions and answers, but just to sort of give you an idea of who I am in case you don't know. I am a compulsive overeater. I have been a compulsive overeater from the moment I was born, and I will, uh, I will always have memories of being very young, very young, three, four, five years old, six years old, and people, doctors, other adults uh, screaming at my mother and father about, why are you letting them eat cookies? Why are you letting them eat candy? Why are you letting them eat you know, brownies, whatever it was? Why are you letting this kid get so fat? What's wrong with you? My, my mom and dad would be embarrassed, and I would be embarrassed for them, because eating the way I was eating just seemed to be the most natural thing in the world. It just seemed to be the thing that we did in our family. We were three people that were all compulsive overeaters. And is that why I'm a compulsive overeater? Because they were? No, I am a compulsive overeater because I'm a compulsive overeater. That's why. And I remember being on a diet when I was about six years old, seven years old, because the world sent me a very strong signal. And the signal that the world sent me was existentially I was incorrect. Existentially I was wrong. I was evil. I was not cutting it as a human being because I was fat. And if I was thin, then I would be smart. And if I was smart, then I'd be thin. And what I discovered much later on is that that has nothing to do with it, that it is indeed an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. But I believed when I was a kid what people told me. Adults told me this. And what they told me was, if you don't get thin, you'll never have a girlfriend. If you don't get thin, you'll never get a good job. If you don't get thin, and on and on and on and on. And what I got was a signal that I was just wrong all over the place and that I just didn't deserve to suck air out of the atmosphere because I was fat. And what I did was I learned to hate myself and I learned to sort of shut out the criticisms of the world. And the world was on me. I mean, it was on me from all directions because of my weight. I was nine years old, and Dr. Jacobson on Devon Avenue was screaming at my mother in Yiddish, and my mother was screaming back at him in Yiddish, and the next thing I knew, I was on very heavy-duty diet pills, very heavy-duty amphetamines, and I didn't eat, I didn't have any kind of appetite, and my world was just chaos when I was on these pills. You sleep about 15, 20 minutes a month. You feel terrible. That you're, The inside of your head feels like it's just going to blow up, you know, and you can't really hear what people are saying, and I get accused of this now, but I got, you know, I'd be saying the same thing like three million times and stuff like that. My mind would just be racing. And then when I would crash down from these diet pills, I would eat Illinois and most of Wisconsin. I'm born and raised in Chicago, if you don't know that. I was born and raised on the north side of Chicago, and I graduated Mather High School in 1972. I'm a Mather graduate. And uh, so I'm, I'm born and raised on Devon Avenue in Chicago. 
and I remember uh, being a teenager, and life was just terrible as a teenager for me. I had all the feelings that boys had. I couldn't act on them, and I wasn't to go on my first date with a girl till I was 35 years of age, and I missed out on on all that stuff, and it really, it, it, extracts a price from me even today in my everyday life and there is a price to pay for the food I ate as a child and even today uh, career-wise and other areas too I do pay a price a heavy price for the amount of food that I ate and the time that I missed out in life on Um, I remember being in my in my late teens, I was I graduated high school in 1972. I was 335 pounds by the time I was a senior in high school, and I was about 500 pounds by the time I was a sophomore in college. I went to Roosevelt University downtown Chicago, and I was about 600 pounds at the time that I graduated college from Roosevelt in 1977. Uh, I was a a, a kid who just was was racked with fear, racked with pain, racked with shame. I was an object of ridicule. When I would leave the house, people would make fun of me. Uh, People would come up to me and slap my stomach, and they would say, when's the baby hippo do? Things like that. People would be touching me in a very evil and and, and just a very invasive way, and it it didn't rest well with me. Um, I... I became a person whose life just did not function. I lied when the truth would have served me better. Now one of the freedoms that I have is I can tell the truth. I can be who I am, and it's such a beautiful existence. But I wrote bad checks. I did whatever I needed to do to survive. And when I was 22, my mom died. When I was 24, my dad died. And my life was a mess. I had uh, horrible, horrible uh, uh, edema swelling of the lower extremities and there were penny and dime size ulcers in the in my calves of my legs and I have scarring there even to this day discoloration varicose veins scarring dry skin even to this day and um my situation physically was horrible just horrible my stomach hung down to just about my knees Uh, I had contact dermatitis. I didn't wear underwear at the end. I had towels shoved between layers of flab. I smelled. I was dirty. I didn't practice my hygiene. This disease dragged me through pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. At the hands of this disease, I was beaten down like a dog. And I was beat down in every way you can beat a human being unmercifully and the fact that I'm still alive today and that I like myself and that I have a recovery is a miracle to God it is a testimony to a loving and powerful God I'm going to get to the good parts because as I say my story is well documented on vision there are many other podcasts where I tell my entire story but here's how I would like to encapsulate this I have been in this program since February 2nd, which was a Friday night, 1979, and two friends pushed their way past the filth of my house, 
and they push their way past the pizza boxes and the Sara Lee brownie tins and the sleeves of Oreo cookies to bring me forcibly to a meeting in Skokie, Illinois of Overeaters Anonymous. And I went to this meeting because they made me go. I didn't want to go. All I wanted to do was to be left alone to die. My greatest ambition in life was to die. I did not want to live in this world. I didn't know how. I saw no purpose to life. I knew that I could not survive with the food, and I was certain that I could not survive without the food. So without the food, with the food, I'm going to have a crappy life. Just take me and kill me now and I did not understand why God did not take me. I do not have the vocabulary or the time to tell you of the miracles that I have seen in this program. I do like myself. I have ups and downs like anyone else, but I am alive today and I am glad of it. I have lost a little over 500 pounds since the time that I reached my ultimate weight of about 700, mid-700 range. I am very glad to be alive. I walk three miles a day, six days a week. I do the best I can to serve other people. Financially, I'm not a millionaire, but my life works. I own my own home. I own my own car. I paid cash for the car. The house I have a mortgage. My bills are paid. I no longer write bad checks. I no longer lie when the truth would serve me better. I'm an honest person and I'm above board. I walk the streets a free man. Nobody can look in my grocery cart as I make my way through the store and see anything in there that I would be ashamed if they knew about it. I do not conduct myself in a below-the-board method. I have the freedom that the, pro- that the program promises. I have the right to stand in the sunlight of the Spirit. When I go into a store and I want to buy a garment, I find garments that fit. You know, there's three things that scare any fat boy. Number one, talking to girls. Number two, buying clothes. And number three, going to the doctor. Those are the three things that scare any fat boy. I'm not sure about the talking to girls part, but I can go to the doctor. The doctor doesn't scream at me. I don't have to be defensive and shut down. And I can go to a store I can go online and I can buy clothing in a normal store. Just a little scenario before we throw it open. I recently went to my 50th year high school reunion for Mather and I recently went there and we took a tour of the school. And as we took the tour of the school, I remember the last time I walked through these halls of Mather High School, and I remember how, how I struggled to walk and stand and function. And we walked through, and I was fine. I was perfectly okay. I was far from the heaviest kid in my class. And when I graduated back in 72, I was by far the fattest kid in that class. No longer is that the case. There are several of them quite a bit heavier than I. And I went through, and we went to the bookstore of our high school, and we were allowed to buy anything we wanted. And I, buy, I bought T-shirts, and I bought shorts, from the high school bookstore and they fit me and they are the same t-shirts and the same shorts that they sell to the high school kids and to me this is one of the greatest miracles of God that I can finally after 50 years 
do what I could not do as a student there. I can wear the gym shorts and wear the T-shirts that the high school kids are wearing, and I didn't have to bring something from home that fit me. I looked just like the other kids, and for me, that's all I ever could have wanted. I love life. I'm 69 years old. I wish I had a lot more time on the clock, but I'm going to make the most of what I have left. And when I was a youngster, most of the friends of my dad came out of the concentration camps. Most, not all, but most. And they would all tell me the same thing, whether they knew each other or not. They would grab my face and they would say, live until you die. Live until you die meant something different then than it means today. Live until you die then meant that I had all the, I could get all the candy bars my money would buy, and that if I had a bunch of candy bars, that was living. Today, I serve God. Today, I am a member of Overeaters Anonymous. I go to two hours of vision for you every morning, Monday through Friday. I don't miss too many special editions on Sunday. I will miss if I'm traveling or if I have something else, and then I'll listen on the recording. But I do not miss two hours of vision every morning. And I participate in the Scottsdale Zoom meetings every night at 5.30 Pacific time, and I love life, and I am absolutely looking forward to today, to tomorrow, to the next day. I absolutely have every promise that the book and the, and the program promised me, and I could not want for a greater way of life. This is the greatest way of life imaginable, and I get to trudge the road of happy destiny with people that I love and people that love me. What could be better? I'm going to throw it open now. Leah, let's open it up for questions and answers. And there's two types of questions I don't want. Please, no food questions. Don't ask me food questions. I am not a nutritionist. My food plan should be of no interest to you. And I am not qualified to judge what you should or should not be eating. Of course, I have certain opinions on sugar and flour, fried foods, things like that. But I don't know what you should be eating. And for the love of God, no math. So please, let's follow the rule. No food and no math questions, and we'll all get along just fine. Leah, let's throw it open. Okay, and we will do that. First, let me let everybody know the share ID for this morning's presentation, 20,321. That's 20321. Of course, thank you, Harlan, for your sharing of your personal story of transformation, always inspirational and miraculous. Harlan's contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that, and we will now transition to a question-answer segment. You can pose a question to Harlan by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. This is Larry K. Susan C. Katie G. from Boston. Larry K. Susan C. Katie G. Felicia P. Felicia P. B. Star one ton mute if you'd like to get your name on the list. Cheryl A. Cheryl A. Anyone else in this group? 
Okay, I'll take that as a no. And remember, no questions on food plans, Please. nor questions on math. Don't okay, bad. let's oh, go, God. Larry Kay. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> it's fun stuff, right? Yeah. Okay, first a quick comment, then right to the question, Leah. Um, so, uh, Leah, thank you so much. I, I'll just say that um, I can speak for Harlan here. We are both card-carrying members of the Leah M. Fan Club for all the things <laughs> yes, that you do. Okay, enough of that, right? Yeah. Now we'll get to the question before Leah has to jump in and say, question, please. Um, Harlan, so my question for you, you've been around a long time. We don't agree on everything. We agree on a lot, but everything. But, um, but can you speak to, let's say, because I want to keep this short, otherwise Leah won't be happy. Let's say three misconceptions about the program of action, maybe three myths, that type of thing. So we don't, you know, you, that would be really helpful to me okay. and others. Thanks. Thank you, Larry. That's a great question. Three misconceptions. Okay. In the 44 years I've been here, and I'm abstinent 24 years, by the way. And I just say, uh, these are the three biggest misconceptions that I see over and over again. The first misconception that I see, people speak of this, and, and, and that abstinence is the most important thing in their life without exception. Now, abstinence is extremely vital because without abstinence, we have nothing. And the doctors, the doctor. The doctor's opinion by Dr. Silkward tells us that without entire abstinence that we cannot recover. He tells us this four times. He mentions this four times, that we must remain abstinent. But abstinence is very uh, like English 101. If you've ever been to college, guys, English 101 is a required class. You're not going to get a college degree without English 101. You must pass the class. Well, English 101 is not the be-all and the end-all. The real purpose here, let's take a look at what the book tells us. It's the thesis line of the book, and it's on page 46. Let's take a look at what the, not 46, excuse me, it's on page 45. It says, well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. Now, I don't have the time to go into everything in this book that tells me that abstinence alone is a very bare minimum. But let's take a look at some of the more obvious things. It tells us that the main object of this book is to help you find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. In another area of this book, it's going to tell me our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. In another part of this book, it's going to tell me that having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all of our affairs. A mere abstinent lifestyle, a mere abstinence is really a diet. So what we're doing here, hopefully, hopefully, is we're going to transcend from dieting and making it about a food plan and, and weight loss to a fuller living experience that we can serve God best when, yes, we're abstinent, but we've had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Notice, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but notice it says in step two, 
came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Notice it doesn't say could restore me to sobriety. Notice it doesn't say came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to abstinence. It says sanity. Why is that? Because sanity has a much higher ceiling. The ceiling of sanity is infinitely high. It's as high as the sky where abstinence has a very low ceiling and that we heal in areas of our life as we progress in this program that we didn't even know were broken. I am healing in areas of relationship and different things in my life that I didn't even know needed attention. And as you progress in this program, if you're anything like me, for the first few years you're here, it's don't eat, go to meetings, don't eat, go to meetings, don't eat, call your sponsor, don't eat, go to meetings. And then what happens is you look around and you say, I'm not that concerned with what people think of me. I'm not that concerned with self-pity and self-loathing. I'm not that concerned with this or that. We start to heal in areas we didn't even know were broken. So abstinence is very important, but a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps and sponsoring others, serving God, that's the most important. Now, the next thing that I see and hear all the time is this misuse of a phrase that appears on page 60, and that's progress, not perfection. Now, I hear people almost every day whether it's on vision, whether it's on the phone, people calling me, whether it's uh, on our Scottsdale meetings, I hear people using that phrase to excuse eating or abhorrent behavior that is killing them. Let's take a look at the paragraph on page 60, and it says, many of us exclaim, first of all, let's stop right there, who's us? Us are the people, the 60, although it was presented as 100, it's really 60. Who are us, the 60 people who were in recovery at the time that the book was printed on April 10th, 1939? Us are the people that are in recovery. It says, what an order, I can't go through with it. Do not be discouraged. No one among us has been able to maintain anything like perfect adherence to these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. We are not saints. The point is we are willing to grow along spiritual lines. In other words, we are works in progress. Excuse me. The principles, the steps we have set down are guides to progress. We, we claim, we who have recovered claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. So what they're saying to me is, isn't that I can go eat Reese's peanut butter cups or I can eat a 42-ounce porterhouse steak. What they're saying is, I'm never going to be perfect no matter how evolved my recovery gets. I'll never rise above the level of a human being. But progress, not perfection, doesn't mean I can do things and eat things that I know are not on my program. And the third misconception is, I can recover without sponsoring or being sponsored. I hear people tell me almost every day of my life, I don't want to sponsor. What they're really saying is, I don't want to risk not being the perfect sponsor. And nobody is the perfect sponsor. 
not even me. No, nobody is the perfect sponsor. So in order to recover from this disease, I must, and this is a big must, I must remember that Ebby Thatcher leaves me an inheritance. And Ebby's inheritance is on the bottom of page 14. On the bottom of page 14, Bill will tell me what he learned from Ebby. It says, my friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Step 12 is a three-part step. Number one, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps. Tried to Number two, tried to carry this message to other alcoholics. Number three, demonstrate these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative. What does imperative mean? It means important above all else to work with others as he had worked with me. In other words, sponsorship. Faith without works was dead, he said. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic. For if an alcoholic failed to perfect and enlarge his spiritual life, now how do I perfect and enlarge my spiritual life? Glad you asked. Through work and self-sacrifice for others. He could not survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. If he did not work, he would surely drink again. If he drank, he would surely die. Then faith would be dead indeed. With us, it is just like that. So I have to have a sponsor that I call every day, and I have to be a sponsor. I have to go out there and give to others what has so freely been given me. And if I could add a fourth real quick and then we'll move on. Larry, this will be the fourth. I know you asked for three. That I can diet with group support and just turn this into a diet club and get the promises. It don't work like that. Thanks, Larry, for the question. Yes, thank you, Larry, for the fabulous question. Harlan, for the fabulous answer. And Susan C., your turn. Yeah, um, well, to identify in, I'll say that I, too, am a member of the Leia M. Fan Club. Thanks for all you do, Leia, and Harlan, for all you do. Um, On to the question. You mentioned, um, you essentially, you kind of alluded to that there are consequences of the beha- of our behaviors in, in the disease. Um, and one that I want to zero in on is health consequences. And, you know, obviously we use the steps to work with these things. I wondered if you could be specific about perhaps a, your narrative around uh, any health consequences you're facing, what the the dishonesty is, the distortion, and the fears. The fears and what God would have you be. Okay. Oh, well, I could speak for three hours on that. That would be more than another special edition. That would be a special edition parts one, two, three, and four, up to about eight. There are many, many consequences to this disease. What I missed out on, the fear that I live in, uh, lived in, uh, I try to you know, do the best, I don't try, I do the best I can, but there are many consequences. I will give you some of those consequences. Number one, I have chronic AFib. 
and AFib is atrial fibrillation of the heart. I have to take a blood thinner, I have to take a beta blocker, and I have to take medicine every day of my life because of the amount of caffeine that I ingested. And caffeine, artificial sweeteners, caffeine, they disrupt the electrical rhythm of the heart. And so I have chronic AFib. I can't even have a, uh, a process by which to knock me out of AFib because I also have false hips and false knees. One of the reasons I have false hips and false knees, a, a skeleton is not designed to carry the kind of weight that I demanded that my skeletal system carried for so many decades. Because I missed out on everything that is a, in a normal life, I am still working at age 69. I wish I could be retired. I wish I could travel the world like some of my friends. I wish I could just get up when I get up and go to sleep when I go to sleep because I'm old and I'm tired, but I have to work because when you're that heavy as I was, you cannot think you're going to get a normal career. So I pay an economic price. Now, I'm doing about as well as I could do, and sometimes I get up and I think, man, I should have done a lot better, and sometimes I get up and I think to myself, good gravy I did I did okay considering I was fighting a monster of a disease I am uh, unable to do certain things that men do because of the weight that I carried and the beta blocker and the blood thinners that I'm on I have missed out on an incredible amount of life I have missed out on many of the things that many of you take for granted that you were doing as teenagers and people in your 20s. So I never got to have those experiences that you guys had. And it hurts me because I know now I can't be 20 years old anymore. I can't be a teenager. There are many consequences to the eating. So all I can do is use this as a way of imploring anyone out there that is still in the food. If you think you're getting away with something and you've been delaying a start in this program, if you think to yourself that you're going to get away with something, you are sadly mistaken and you are going to pay a very hefty price. Let's face the fact. One way or the other, we're going to stop eating. Let's stop while we're still alive. Let's stop while we're still alive. The consequences that I suffered may be different from the consequences that you suffer. But the shame and the guilt and the self-loathing, this is a disease of isolation. It is a disease of doubt. It is a disease of shame. It is a disease of self-loathing. The recovery counteracts every one of those things. The recovery helps me like myself because one day at a time, I take action after action after action that establishes credibility with myself, that establishes me with behaviors that I enjoy about myself, and in so doing, I like myself today. Not in a conceited, narcissistic way, hopefully, but in a way that says, I'm a good person. Yes, there are people who don't like me. Yes, there are people who reject me. Yes, there are people who I don't even register on their radar. They, you know, they don't think about me one way or the other. 
But in God's eyes, I see my value. In my eyes, I see the value. And I'm reminded of something that's very, very important. And it's on page 132. Excuse me. It's on page 124. And it says here, this painful past may be of infinite value to other families still struggling with their problem. We think each family which has been relieved owes something to those who have not. And when the occasion requires, each member of it should be only too willing to bring these former mis- bring former mistakes, no matter how grievous, out of their hiding places. Showing others who suffer how we were given help is the very thing which makes life seem so worthwhile to us now. Cling to the thought that in God's hands the dark past is the greatest possession you have, the key to life and happiness for others. With it you can avert death and misery for them. So I see the value in the suffering that I had had endured, and I can pass this to other people. So laugh, clown, laugh. Eat away. Go ahead. Diet with group support. But one way or the other, we're going to stop eating. One way or the other, I hope it's while we're still alive. And one way or the other, we are going to have to come to grips with the fact that it's either recover or die. And there are worse deaths than being dead. The living death of this disease is a nightmare. I hope that answers it, Susan. Thanks very much for your question, Susan. Yes, thank you, Susan C. Katie G., your turn. Katie G., Boston, Mass. Okay. Good morning. Good morning, Harlan, Leah, everybody. Um, I can't believe how much you know about me as a compulsive anorexic bulimic um, and how much you've saved my life, and Leah, and then I promise Leah I have my question. I just had to say that. Sorry. Um, Hey, Harlan, I was going to call you anyway. I had four conversations yesterday with women who identify as recovered. One of them gained 15 to 20 pounds because she was overeating through addictive food behaviors. Um, The other one is not weighing and measuring, even though that's an addictive food behavior. The other two have lost their sponsors because they got to step 12 and were told that they were done sponsoring. Now, we all get to read the book as we will, but I would really like you, please, to tell me how you are sponsored um, and, and how that has helped you because um, that would help me today. Thank you. So the question is, how am I sponsored and, and how it helps me? I actually have two sponsors, um, but the bottom line is, is that uh, my situation is such that I added a sponsor in a specific area of my life, and it has turned out, it's turning out just fabulously. I've had the same sponsor for a long time. He lives in Los Angeles. He is a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he uh, he is very adept at sponsoring me, and this is how I'm sponsored. I call every single day. I do not miss days, and I've been abstinent for 24 years. And he points out the obvious, and he has objectivity. A solitary self-appraisal, I am told, proved insufficient. I need the objectivity of, a, of an objective human being that is not inside my head and privy to the rantings and ravings of my demonic ego. I am on a lake in a canoe with all of you. 
and all of you are floating around the lake and you're going in your canoes and you're going quickly and you're seeing all the sights and I just can't seem to go anywhere and I'm very frustrated and I'm feeling very sorry for myself. And my sponsor, whose name happens to be John, comes by and says, put your paddle in the water and start paddling. And I put my paddle in the water and start paddling, and lo and behold, I'm going just as quick as most of you. And I'm seeing the beauty in the lake, too. But I needed somebody to point out that I'm not paddling. You guys are paddling your canoe. I wasn't paddling my canoe. And he comes by, and he says... Put your paddle in the water and paddle your canoe. And when I do take that action, he helps me. So I believe that no matter how evolved my recovery gets, I will never rise above the level of a human being. And so I need sponsorship. I need the guidance of another objective person. Now, do you want me to speak to the people who claim recovery and they're overeating? All I, I, I'll, just take, I'll just assume your answer is yes. Katie, I would say this. Recovered people do not overeat. People who are in recovery are neutral. In other words, if we go to page 84 of the big book of AA, and we see page 84, and I'm looking below the level of the instructions for step 10. It says, we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time, sanity, calling us back to step 2, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. Well, I don't have to read the rest of it. In my opinion, if you are recovered... That means you've had a spiritual awakening. You do not overeat. Thanks for the question, Katie. I hope I answered it, and um, I hope everything is well with you. Yes, thank you, Katie G. Felicia, your turn. Felicia. Felicia, we're not hearing you. Sorry, can you hear me? (laughs) Sorry, yes. Now we can. Felicia F. from New Jersey. Sorry about that. Harlan, thank you so much. Leah, thank you so much. And um, I am new in, or not new, I've been around a long time, but I'm new in this, and uh, you guys have saved my life. All right, question. The question is um, about resentment. Harlan, how... How do you let go of all the stuff that you were talking about, the the pain that sort of brought you to the food? And how do you, what do you turn to now on a daily basis when you feel those really big feelings? Thank you. I turned to step four and now I turn to step 10. Step four deals with three inventories. Number one, resentment. Well, they're all part of the same inventory, really. It's not three inventories. It's three parts of the inventory. The inventory process is steps four through nine. But it deals with resentments. It deals with fear. 
and sexual harms done others. Those are the three areas of step four that it concerns itself with. And today I have step 10, and that's how I deal with it. And I also have to remember something. No matter what anybody does or says or doesn't do or doesn't say or whatever, is this the hill I want to die on? Really? Is this the hill that I want to die on? Because if I hold on to that resentment, I'm going to die. It's that simple. I don't want to die. This is not the hill that I want to die on. And it says on page 64 of the big book of AA, it says, resentment is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From its stem, all forms of spiritual disease. For we have not only, <clears throat> excuse me, we have not only, uh, Mental, we have not only been sick mentally, mentally and physically ill, we have been spiritually sick. Well, take a look at what that means. If I hold on to this resentment, I'm going to go back into the food because food is going to seem like a step up from where I am. Because when I'm in resentment, I don't feel very good. And food will make me feel better instantly. And I know that in my brain. Without knowing it, I know it well. And food will seem like a step up from where I am. So this resentment has a benefit. What is the benefit to a resentment? While I'm resenting you, I don't have to look at me. That's the benefit of a resentment. I don't have to look at myself. But if I'm honest with myself, I don't want to live in the food. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do step 10. Excuse me, I'm going to do step 4. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, and then when I get to a point, I'm going to get to step 10. But those resentments are lethal, and it's like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. I hope that answers your question, Felicia, and thank you for asking it. Thank you, Felicia. And from outside of Philadelphia, we have Pete B. You're up, Pete. Okay. Thanks, Leia, for taking the meeting. I always appreciate your service in Harlan. Thank you so much for everything that you bring to a vision for you and all of the meetings that you go to. I'm inspired by your story and inspired by your wealth of knowledge in the uh, of the uh, literature that we study. And so my question deals specifically with the instructions that I hear given about Step 10. And I hear or I read in the big book that it says when selfishness, self, when when, when the selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear crop up. We ask God at once to remove them, period. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed someone. Now, I cannot reconcile why I hear the instructions that when selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear show up, we discuss them with someone immediately when clearly there's an if that follows that. And I just want to understand how we get to the, the point where we instruct people that the requirement of step 10 is when these things crop up, we discuss them with someone immediately. And I, I just want to understand why we give the instructions, why they're two separate, two separate directions. Okay, let's that. take a look at that. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you finished? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes, I was. Okay. Pete, thanks for the question. That's a really good question. Let's take a look at what it says, and let's look at the words on the pages. What it says here is we discuss it with someone immediately. That is a specific instruction. 
and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Making amends quickly if we've harmed anyone can be separated from discussing it with someone immediately. But let's take a look at what it says. When these things crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. That's the qualifier, if. If we've harmed anyone, we make amends. But if we've not harmed anyone, it doesn't, disclose, it doesn't uh, exclude us from discussing things with someone immediately. I need that objectivity. I cannot, on my own, assess anything in my head because I have an ego, and my ego is as big as all outdoors. It's as big as the world. And when I am in my own head, I'm in trouble. So let's take a look at the steps we're working. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. That calls us back to step four. When these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them, step six and seven. We discuss them with someone immediately, step five, and make amends quickly. If we have harmed anyone, steps eight and nine, then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Step 12, love and tolerance of others is our code. So we're going to take this sentence that you asked about, and we're going to know that we discuss these things with someone immediately, whether we have harmed someone or not. If there's no harm done, I am not exonerated from discussing this with someone because I need that objectivity. And step 10 is one of the most underutilized steps. Steps 2 and 10 are the most underutilized. Steps 3 and 4 are the most misunderstood. Step 10 is also very misunderstood. But step 10 is a vital step in my survival. And I am going to discuss what's going on immediately with someone, whether I've harmed someone or not. And that's my answer. Thanks for asking the question, Pete. I, I want to also compliment you on what you bring to the table as well. Thank you for your kind words. All right. I hope that Thank you. Thank you. Pete mm-hmm. Cheryl A., it's your turn. Hi, good morning. This is Cheryl A., Recovered Compulsive Overeater in Brooklyn, Massachusetts. Um, I want to just say, Harlan, not only did I love what you bring to the table and to our fellowship and to all of us, but um, that I, um, it is just such a joy to watch you continue to grow, uh, which I've done, thank you, God, for 35 years, um, and uh, to watch. It just never gets old, Harlan. Never gets old to hear you. Never, never, never. My question is this. You have spoken over the years about this disease being um, a spectrum disorder. And I I would like you to elaborate on that a little bit. What does it mean for this disease to be a spectrum disorder? Okay, I can do that, but I'm going to predicate my answer by saying, and Cheryl, by the way, before I say anything, it's been a joy to watch your growth as well. I met Cheryl when she was a college student at Northwestern University, and I was sent to pick her up because she broke her leg, her ankle, and she needed a ride, and it was a miserable, freezing, cold day, and I was having trouble finding where she was, and she was, what, 18 or 17 at the time, and now she has her own family and kids and a husband and everything else, and wow, it's been it's been interesting, Cheryl, to watch you grow and watch you progress, too. Um, but anyway, 
Um, this is my opinion. Now, this is not uh, in. This is not information that is in the big book. I'm going to give you my opinion, and I want to predicate this by saying opinion. So don't hold my feet to the fire by saying, what page is this on? It's not in there. I believe, from 44 years of observation, that we are affected by this disease identically. In other words, we all have, whether you're anorexic, you're bulimic, you have the twist of the mind, and you have the allergy of the body. We are affected identically. However, we are not affected equally. This is my opinion. It is not verifiable in the big book. It is not verifiable in literature. This is my observation over 44 years in this program, going to thousands and thousands of meetings of Overeaters Anonymous, both live, on the phone, and on Zoom. We are not affected equally. We have high bottoms. We have low bottoms. And because we have that, we have to always keep in mind that the level of my efforts must be greater than the level of my affect. What I see often in OA are people who settle in to a level of service. They make this many outreach calls. They go to this many meetings. And that's it. They're not going to do any more than that. They do what they're comfortable with, and that's it. Almost as if it was sort of a hobby. I have to do more and different all the time because my disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal if untreated. The disease is progressive. man of 30 was doing a great deal of spree drinking. He remained bone dry for 25 years. He pulled out a bottle in his carpet slipper and was dead within four years. Did being dry slow the progression of his disease? Absolutely not. Being abstinent will not slow down the progression of our disease. So I have to keep doing more and more and more all the time. And if I don't, I will not stay ahead of the fatal progression of this disease. So just to sort of encapsulate this, this is my opinion. This is not verifiable in any literature of which I'm familiar. We are affected equally, but we, excuse me, we are affected identically, allergy of the body, twist of the mind, but we are not affected equally. We have a spectrum disorder. Some are affected to this level. Some are affected to a higher level. Some to a higher level yet. And so we have to keep working to overcome the level of our effect. That's what we have to do. And that's just opinion. Don't throw it out at me. It's not, I, don't ask me what page it's on. It's only in the book of Harlot. So this is my opinion. Thanks, Cheryl, for the question. And it's always great to hear your voice. Yes, thank you, Cheryl A. Okay, we have time, certainly, for more questions. This is a great opportunity. You can press star one to unmute. I need your first name, including the first letter of your last name. Christina J. Christina J. Janice P.M. Janice P.M. Barbara A. Barbara A. Rita R. 
Penny C. Ramona A. Penny C. Did I hear Craig in there? I heard Judith a Yeah, I heard Judith S. P. Rita R. Yes, Rita R. I have you. Thus far, I have Christina J. Janice P. M. Barbara. A, I believe, Rita R, Penny C, Judith S, P. Who did I miss? Carolyn S, H. Carolyn S, H. Rivka R? And I believe Leon B. Okay. Leon B, that's who I missed. Okay, Christina J, Janice P, M, Barbara A, Leon B, Rita R, Penny C, Judith S, P, Carolyn S, H. Let's see how many we can squeeze in in our remaining time here. Wrapping up at 10 a.m. Eastern time this morning. Christina J, go ahead with your question, please. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Harlan and everyone. Uh, Thank you for your wonderful continued service, Leah. Harlan, uh, my husband and I were listening to your opening speech there. And I said when I left the room to go listen to the questions, because he wasn't going to go with those, because uh, he has other things to do. But I said, well, there was our morning, Sunday morning sermon. <laughs> Just a, a stunning opening and encapsulates so much. So my question is related to what you were just sharing with the previous answer about our recovery and how we can't rest on our laurels. So what does this more and more and more look like? That's my question. Thank you, Christina. I'll tell you exactly what that looks like. It means that I make a lot of outreach calls and I sponsor more people than I should. It means that I make more outreach calls than I've ever made in my entire life. I do them on the fly. I multitask. I do whatever I need to do to stay ahead of it. I go to meetings I don't normally go to at times. I do more and different. And I have a, a, a group of people that I've been sponsoring for some time, and I also sponsor people that are new. I primarily sponsor, I, I sponsor men, but I primarily sponsor men that are at least 300 pounds or more. Uh, I, I don't, I won't refuse somebody uh, who's under 300 pounds, but I feel I am best served. But I sponsor more and more of them than I've ever sponsored before. Why? Not because I'm so altruistic. Christina, I'm not. But what I will say to you is I don't want to eat. I don't want to die. I don't want to die in the food. I want to live until I die. So I find the time to sponsor. I make the time to sponsor. I found the time to eat. I found the time to write the bad checks. I found the time to get the Reese's peanut butter cups. Now I make time for the most joyous thing in the world. I make time to help the suffering. Not that I'm so altruistic. Not that I'm such a wonderful person. No. As a matter of fact, I'm loaded with self-pity and fear and all kinds of defects of character. But on page 100, it tells me something. Both you and the new man must walk day by day in the path of spiritual progress. If you persist, remarkable things will happen. When we look back, we realize that the things which came to us when we put ourselves in God's 
God's hands were better than anything we could have planned. Follow the dictates of a higher power, and you will presently live in a new and wonderful world, no matter what your present circumstances. There are days, Christina, that my heart is breaking. There are days I feel very alone and lonely. There are days I feel like I can't go on anymore. But there are more days when I am called to do more and more, and my life gets better and better and better and better. And I'm so grateful to God, and I'm so grateful to this program for this magnificent way of life that doing more is an honor and a privilege. And lo and behold, I don't run out of time. Lo and behold, I'm okay in terms of time. And my my bills get paid and everything else gets done. So thanks for the question, Christina. Good to hear your voice this morning, too. Thank you, Christina. Janice PM, you're up. Yes, and good morning to you, Mr. Holland. This (laughs) is Janice. And you are. You are, uh, this is all I can say about you is you are an example of amazing grace with all your victories, because that's all, I get the chills when I say it, because that's what it is. That's what I hear, and and it is. It's amazing grace that's shown through you. Now, could you just give some misconceptions, just go over it, you know, however you want to, of the difference between step 10 and step 11, because okay. I have sponsees that want to do this and want to do that. So if you could do that, you know, according to what the book and you. Yes, okay. please. Well, Thank you. Well, step 10 is, is, is very simple answer. Step 10 is yep. step 10, and step 11 is step 11. I don't know where in the world this got married. I don't have a clue. Step mm-hmm. 10 is something that I do throughout the day as things come up. Step 11 is done once in the morning and once at night. There are no written instructions for step 11. There are no written instructions for step 10. These are steps that you take orally. You can write out step 11. I know a lot of people do that, and that's fine. And if that's what you want to do, God bless you. There's The only steps that have written instructions are these, four, eight, and sometimes nine. There are no writing assignments. No written instructions for 1, 2, 3, 5, 6, 7, 10, 11, or 12. None. Zero. Step 10 is done throughout the day when resentments or fears or selfishness or dishonesty or some disturbance happens. You do a step 10. Step 11 begins on the bottom of 85, and you do it at night and then you do it again in the morning, and that's it. So step 10 is step 10, and step 11 is step 11, and near the twain should meet. They are two separate and distinct steps. I hope that answers it, and yet it'll come up again. You know, when we do these, it'll come up where people are mishmashing step 10 and step 11. I don't know why. I don't know where that comes from. I just don't. Thanks, Janice, for the question. Barbara A., your turn. Barbara A. Hi, thank you. Thank you, Leah and Harlan, for your service. Your continued service on this line. Been listening to A Vision for You for about five years. Finally, have some abstinence. 
for four months, Solid Absence. I've been sponsoring for the first time, sponsoring the way I think the big book wants me to sponsor or tells me to sponsor. I have people calling me. My question is, they call and they won't put down the food. And I, um, I say to them that I feel I cannot work the steps with them if they don't put down the food. And just trying in my mind not to, um, not to chase after them. If they don't call me back, I don't want to chase after them. I just learning how to sponsor. My, I guess my question is, let them go. Absolutely. The Yiddish word of the day is lozem gain. Lozem gain means leave them alone. Let's go to the top of page ninety-six. And let's let my friend Bill answer this question. I'm going to defer to Bill. It says on the top of page 96, do not be discouraged if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. We find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half-dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. Barbara, when people will not put the food down, they will not. Master Yoda was a very good sponsor. Master Yoda says, there is no try. Do or do not. But if they will not put the food down, I don't want to use the word cannot. If they will not put the food down, leave them alone. Luzum gain. That's the Yiddish word of the day. Luzum gain means leave them alone. And Barbara, you have to uh, work with somebody who does want what you have. Don't keep chasing after someone who does not take the action. And that's my answer. I hope that helps. Thank you, Barbara A. Leon B., your turn, Leon. <clears throat> good morning, Leon. Lovely hearing your voice as always. Um, Harlan, good day to you. Um, you kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, you speak about 2 and 10 being the most underutilized steps. I- I'm totally realizing and understanding the importance of um, doing 10s on a daily basis, um, but how do we utilize step 2? Utilize step two. Thank you for the question, Leon. That's a good one. I love that you asked that. Leon, you utilize step two by improving and digging deeper into service and into prayer and into into your relationship with God. Any relationship that I have needs to be worked at. If I don't work at a relationship, it will go away. I have to communicate, I have to listen, I have to show the other person that when they're talking to me, I'm listening, and that the things that are important to them are important to me. And I have to impart on them things that are important to me so that they can reciprocate, things like that. Well, God's relationship with me is exactly the same thing. If I work on the relationship and I bring things to God, like gosh, I wish this was different, gosh, I wish this person, whatever that may be. And I'm talking to God, I'm listening to God, I'm praying to God, and I'm serving God. I'm doing service. 
then my relationship with God starts to improve and deepen and expand, and I start to feel him with me all the time. Now, that's a work in progress that never, you never arrive at a spiritual awakening. You never arrive at a spiritual, well, maybe a spiritual experience, but you are continuing to develop a deeper and more profound relationship with God. And in so doing, you get a more profound and deeper relationship, not only with others, but with yourself. So ultimately, step two is part of a process, part of a process, where I am right with God, right with myself, and right with my fellow human being. And step two is worked on by a continuing and deepening of that relationship between me and God. That's what it is. Thank you, Leon B., for your question. Great to hear your voice. Rita R., you're up. Yes, hi. We can't hear you, Rita. I think we lost her altogether. Leah, I think we lost her. Mm-hmm. That could be. Why don't we go to the next person and then come back to Rita, something like that. Hi. Go ahead, Rita. Let's see if we can hear you. Okay, can you keep talking? Let's hear. All right, we're going to come back around to Rita. Penny C, your turn. Good morning. This is Penny C. I'm recovered, a compulsive reader from the Boston area. And um, thank you, Leah, and thank you, Mark Holland. And I'm going to repeat a question that I asked on on um, Vision for You second hour that you didn't get a chance to respond to, and that's that in talking with a sponsee, one that's been we've we we I've been a sponsor for many many years, and we talk almost daily. Um, the question of the third step came up, and I do believe that step three is a conclusion of the mind and. In, in, in a decision, simply a decision. Yet, when we read the speak brought up that when we read the third step prayer, the wording of the third step prayer sounds like it's more um, action than than just a decision. In fact, in reading OA literature, that's exactly what, what it seems to say. So, um, yeah, if you could respond to that, I, I would be very grateful. The wording is, of course, quite optional so long as we express the idea of voicing it without reservation. What is the wording of step three? What is the what is step three? What is the prayer telling me? God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self. What is the bondage of self? Those are the defects of character. Fear, selfish, resentment, self-seeking, and dishonesty. There's no other defects of character. Yelling at the dog, being late for work, uh, turning in your homework uh, late, those are not defects of character. Those are behaviors that stem from the defects of character. So I'm asking God to remove my defects of character that I may better do thy will. 
by removing my defects of character, now I can serve you better. Take away my difficulties. What are my difficulties? The defects of character, which are the children of ego. That victory over them may bear witness to those I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. In other words, relieve me of these things so I am a better example to others of what you can do through me. May I do thy will always. We thought well before taking this step, making sure we were ready, that we could at last abandon ourselves utterly to him. What is step three? Step three is an agreement to do what? Four through 12 every day for the rest of your life. If How do I know you've taken step three? There's no writing in step three. You're not turning anything over to anyone in step three. You're making a decision to do so. How do you turn your will and life over to God? By doing 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 every day for the rest of your life. You mean I have to do a four-step inventory every day? Holy crap on a cracker. No. You do steps 10, 11, and 12. In 10, you're going to do 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 12. In visiting 11, you're going to retake these steps. So step four, how do I know you've taken it? You're walking around with pencil and paper doing step four. That's how I know you've taken step three. Simply put, remove my defects. I'm going to roll my sleeve up and do the rest of the steps so I can be a better example of what you can do, God. And that's what step three is all about, Charlie Brown. It's not about anything else. There's no writing. There's no ancillary reading. It shouldn't take weeks and weeks and months. It should take 30 seconds. Based on the conclusion of the mind that you are a compulsive overeater, that you have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body, and that you've come to believe that there's a power greater than yourself that will restore you to sanity, what action am I now going to take to, to get restored? I'm going to do the steps. Step three is very simply a decision to do the rest of the steps. If it takes longer than 30 seconds, you're doing it incorrectly. With that, I will pass. But thank you, Penny, for the question, and that's my answer. Thank you, Penny C., Rita R., we're going to circle back to you. Rita. Let's see if your audio is better. Okay, can you hear me now? Perfect. Much better. Yes. Perfect. Oh, wonderful. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Leah, for your service. Holland, as well, for your service to to me, to us, to humanity. Thank you. Um, so I uh, was wondering if you could speak to the connection between non-food-related behaviors and um, relapse. Um, you know, I, um, I find that when the food is down, um, things like uh, watching TV or drinking coffee are calling me. And I think I know the answer, but I just thought I would put it out there. Thank you. Well, uh, I watch TV all the time, and I'm in recovery. I don't, I don't. I I live alone. Uh, I wish I didn't, but I live alone. Okay. Well, I'm not going to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner looking at a wall. 
So I do eat in front of the television set, and I seem to be in good recovery. I also watch TV at night. I like my Cubs. I like the Bears. I like the Bulls. I like the Blackhawks when they're good. Not now. They stink. But the bottom line is is that I do watch television. I do not drink coffee, not because of a moral issue with coffee or anything. I have gastritis, and I have AFib. And caffeine disrupts the electrical system of the heart, and it also antagonizes gastritis, so I don't consume caffeine at all. Some of the non-food-related behaviors might be stealing, gossiping, lying, cheating on your spouse, uh, cheating on your taxes, something like that. Those behaviors are a hop, skip, and a jump for most of us from the food because they produce guilt and shame, and they produce fear, and they produce resentment, things like that. And when those things are going around in my head, food is a step up from where I am. So the non-food-related behaviors that we see in ourselves are to be avoided at all costs. And this is why we need program. This is why dieting alone and abstinence alone will not suffice. These behaviors will make food all the more attractive. It'll be like the sirens calling the sailors to bash their ships on the shore. Because when we're loaded up with fear about the IRS or the police or or whatever, we're in over our head gambling, One of the things I hear all the time from people that get into recovery is they start shoplifting. They start stealing. This is a very common thing that I hear in recovery. Well, when you do that, the fear, the guilt, the shame, the remorse, again, they're going to make food seem like a step up from where you are, and eating becomes a very downhill slide because you just feel so horrible, you cannot bear the way you feel. So these behaviors, Rita, are very, very uh, important, and they are the canaries in the coal mine. They are indicative that there is a spiritual problem. Those behaviors are the canaries in the coal mine, and I hope that that answers your question. Thanks for getting us where we could hear you, and thanks for your question, Rita. Appreciate it. Thanks, Rita R. Judith S.P., your turn. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Judith S.P. from Maryland, gratefully recovered for today. Thank you, Leah, for your continuing service and wisdom. And Harlan, appreciate uh, your being here today. I am truly grateful that I'm a compulsive overeater because my world has opened up at the ripe old age of blah, blah, um, that whatever time I have left is going to be spent uh, in service to others through God's grace and mercy. Uh, My question is, relationship between humiliation and humility. I have heard and I've read in various places that, you know, the definition of humiliation and the definition of humility as I see my compulsive overreading is a gift from God to have brought me into the fourth dimension, I somehow want to uh, work on and understand better the relationship between humiliation 
and humility if you have any share on that. Thank okay. you for letting me ask. Judith, thank you very much. This is something that uh, does baffle a lot of people because the words sound so similar. Humiliation is to cause painful loss of pride, self-respect, or dignity. In contrast, humility means a modest opinion of one's own importance. But humiliation is something that I am very, very familiar with because I've been humiliated in this disease my entire life. I always had to have the special chair. I always had to have something different from other people, other kids. Humiliation, people making fun of me. What am I supposed to say to them? No, I'm not fat. And I learned very early on that if a fat kid says two and two is four and a skinny kid says two and two is 132, that two and two is 132 because he can always trump you out by saying yeah but you're fat what am i supposed to say to that no i'm not humiliation is something that we all suffer and then we start to humiliate ourselves so that others can't seemingly get to us we start self-deprecating and I've been a victim of that, too. I self-deprecate because I feel that maybe if I say it first, maybe you'll leave me alone. I'm hoping. And if there was one superpower I always wanted, I didn't want to leap tall buildings in a single bound. I didn't want to be faster than a speeding bullet. I didn't want to be able to, to alter rivers and streams with my bare hands. I wanted the superpower of invisibility. I wanted the superpower of invisibility so that people would stop beating on me. I am a survivor. I have been humiliated. I have been called names. I have been taken to task by a world that wouldn't accept me. And through God's grace and mercy, through a loving God, I can stand in step seven and humbly say, God, I have a modest opinion of my own importance. I am asking you to please remove my defects of character. Humiliation is a painful loss of pride, self-respect, or dignity. And in contrast, humility means a modest opinion of one's own importance. They are two completely different things. One comes from others and, and ourselves. And one comes from God. God would never humiliate me. And when, when people were humiliating me, I remember a guy by the name of Elliot. He came up to me in the schoolyard at Green School when I was in second grade. And he came up to me and he said, you're fat, Grabowski. And he punched me in the nose as hard as he could. And he gave me a bloody nose. He said, you're fat, Grabowski. And he punched me. Well, the bottom line is, I don't want to be punched anymore. I don't want to be rejected anymore. But being rejected and punched by life is going to happen. There are going to be punches. There are going to be rejections that we are going to have to take because there is no choice. But we can humbly stand before God and say, God, make of me what you will. Make of me what you will. I want to be serving you and I want to be the image of what you want me to have but don't blame God don't blame God for the humiliation 
he was crying right there with you because human beings have free will and they can humiliate or reject us, hurt us, shame us, scare us, anger us, marginalize us. But God is crying too. I hope that answers it, Judith. Thanks for the question. Thank you, Judith. And our final question for the morning comes from Carolyn S.H. Carolyn, okay. Hello. Hello, Harlan. Hi, Leah. I'm Carolyn S.H. I'm in Massachusetts and off in New York, and um, I'm recovering today. I um, would love to hear more about um, your, if if you don't mind, if you want to share um, your relationship to your higher power. You quoted, um, you know, page 45. This book is about um, the main objective is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And you talked about it a little bit um, in your answer to step two, that step two question. Like, what does that look like for you? Do you talk to God in your head a lot? All the time. What, what is all your God the time. Like? I talk to him all the time, Carolyn. I pray, and, I pray without ceasing as best I can. I need God's help, and I get God's help. Sometimes it doesn't always come the way I want it to come. Sometimes I get results in life I wish were different. But the bottom line is I have a pretty darn good life. If I let God just have his way, I do have a pretty good life. Um, My bills are paid. I'm as healthy as a 69-year-old with chronic AFib and uh, all this stuff, you know, is. I've had extensive plastic surgery. Um, You know, I've been sort of rebuilt, you know, by surgeons over the years. Uh, I'm as healthy as I could probably expect to be. Uh, I wish there were certain things about my life that were different, uh, but they're not, and they're not different today. Maybe they'll be different tomorrow. Maybe I'll get a chance to retire. Maybe, you know, one day I'll, I'll, you know, whatever. But the bottom line is is that um, God is here and all is well. And, yes, I may have my heart broken. Or yes, I may, you know, I may see something that angers me or, or, or scares me or something. But God is here, and he's alive, and he's well. There's no external emergency. Nobody gets their script stuck to. It just doesn't happen like that. And I want my script stuck to. I want, God, here's what I want. I want this. I want that. I want this. Oh, this. I want a new house. I want this. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. But if I serve God and I do the things that are in front of me, my life works out pretty good. My life seems to work out pretty darn good. I have very little, if anything, to complain about. And um, uh, I'm very, very lucky. I have friends in and out of OA. I have a life that includes other people. Um, I have a life that includes ups and downs. But I'm not alone. I'm definitely not alone, and I feel him with me all the time, all the time. I hope that answers your question, Carolyn. Thank you, Carolyn, for your question. Thanks to all who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Harlan, for your compelling presentation this morning and wonderful time spent together posing questions, answering questions this morning. Thank you so much for your inspiration and your instruction and all that you give to this fellowship. 
You give so much of yourself, and you are certainly beloved and appreciated greatly. The share ID for this morning, 20,321. That's 20321 for today's presentation. And we're going to close now from page 164. It's found in a chapter entitled, A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. Answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Harlan, can we get your... Contact information at this time, please. Sure, of course. Um, I'm Harlan G, H-A-R-L-A-N-G. My phone number is 480-495-8961. That's 480-495-8961. My email address is harlan, H-A-R-L-A-N, 288 at gmail. Dot com. That's H-A-R-L-A-N-288 at gmail.com. Okay, once again, Harlan's contact information is the following, 